0: Good morning, church family. I pray that you are staying safe as this hurricane sweeps through our area. And I'm so grateful that we have this online worship experience so that we can all be safe, but still worship our God together. If you're not from Florida, just know that uh, we're happy that you are here with us. We're happy we could provide this to uh, encourage you and to put you in God's word. We are in the middle of a series in Genesis that Tracy and I have been working through and just by happen chance, we are going to be talking about the flood this morning. And what is so significant, at least today, about this narrative is that uh, it's a very intense and often controversial part in our Bible. Many of us struggle with well, is this a historical account um, in our Bible? Others of us, we struggle with um, a God who is able to do something at this caliber. You see, for many of us, the idea that the Bible is good and beautiful and loving, it crashes against these moments in our Bible of bloodshed and violence and judgment. We find ourselves asking questions like, how could a good God allow something like the flood to take place? Did a good God really ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? did God really tell the Israelites to eliminate all of the native people found in the land of Canaan? And without a good answer, these questions, they should leave us unsure. They should keep us awake at night. They should rattle our confidence. They should make our belief seem less believable. And the problem that many of us run into is two uh, overgeneralized things. One is we as Christians say, well, that is the God of the Old Testament. I would rather view the God of the New Testament and just tuck these stories under the rug so I don't have to worry about them. Others, um, they will come to these moments in the story, they'll read this about God and they'll say, you know what, that's not for me. I don't want to be a part of a God who could do something like that and they leave their faith behind too. I remember myself, uh, beginning of my faith when I was 16 years old, I was reading through these intense stories in my Bible for the very first time, and I remember going to my mentor at the time. I, I, I came to him with my questions, my frustrations, my disappointments in God, in His character, in His choices, and I'll never forget the advice my mentor gave me. He asked me a question. He said, do you want to know what's getting in the way? You are. You see, one of the obstacles, major obstacles we face in our egocentric culture is we often fail to see God's purposes over our preferences. What we have to learn to do is approach the Bible with open eyes, with open hearts, with open minds. We have to pray for clarity through God's wisdom, not our own. And and if we can do that, if we can find ourselves doing these things along with others, what will happen is we'll begin to discover the good answers to these intense questions. The Bible has nothing to hide from you. And so we must approach it with sincerity, with a willingness to listen, even when that answer isn't exactly the one we want to hear. So with that in mind, the Bible both affirms the motivation and the resolution of the flood in four significant verses. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in these four verses in Genesis chapter 6. Starting in verse 5, first we're going to get a window into what God sees. Gonna be we're gonna see with God's eyes. We're gonna be lifted to a divine perspective. Next, in verse six, we will not just see what God sees, but we're gonna feel what God feels. We're gonna get a window into his hearts. There's a shift in verse seven, we're gonna see what God intends to do based off of what he sees and what he feels. And then finally, a significant verse, verse eight of Genesis chapter six, we'll see God's plan to continue to partner with humans. And I believe a suitable amount of time in just these four verses, they will not just help me understand what happened in this intense moment in my Bible, but also give me clarity of why stories like this matter for me today. And so let's begin in verse five of chapter six of Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention Of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." You see, the God of the Old Testament, he doesn't act arbitrarily, and he doesn't run this world immorally. No one is going to receive this level of divine judgment simply for being human, right? God, in this story, he's moved to anger because of human's deliberate violation against the code God has willed his creation to live. And it's important for us to observe this right at the beginning of this, that there is a clear-cut moral motivation behind sending the flood. What God saw when he looked down on his good creation was both the extensiveness and the intensiveness of sin. And sin that such depravity of what he saw, it controlled more than just man's actions. It has seeped into their very heart and their mind and is in every scheme in man's imagination. It was nothing but evil. Now, I want to break down just one word there because it's an important use of word to show the pervertedness that has creeped into man's mind. It is the word yaser, it's sometimes used for imagination or to mean desire. Now, I bring up that word because we've already seen a form of it used in the Genesis story. In Genesis chapter 1, when God formed, yser man out of soil. However, in that story, God was the potter. In this story, is humankind, that is the potter. And they are creating and forming their own thoughts. And what God formed is beautiful. What man formed is repulsive. And if I just take a moment of reflection, just to look inside my own heart and my own mind, I will begin to reveal and see the reality of that. So to help us internalize everything that's happening so far, to get, help us get hooks into the story on why the flood needed to take place, I went on a quest for a story I heard a few years ago. It's a story of a woman named Alyssa. At one time, she noticed that one of her boots was fitting a little tighter than it normally did. She wasn't sure if this was due to some kind of bruise or some other form of inflammation, but she thought, give it time, this thing will go away as these things normally do. But months went by, and the bruise or the the growth never left. And after multiple passes with various doctors, she finally received an MRI revealing a sizable cancerous tumor in her leg. Now, at this point, it was too late to remove it safely. And so the doctors offered her advice, maybe scary advice that you've heard before. Hope for the best. Prepare for the worst. And so, Alyssa began the long, difficult road of chemo. She lost her hair. She lost her strength. She lost all hope of ever beating this this thing. And after six rounds of chemo, the doctors presented Alyssa with the choice. Either lose your leg or lose your life. Now, I think many of us have already made our decision. And the same conviction that you feel right now is the same conviction you should feel in God's decision of the flood. Humankind had become so corrupt at this stage in the story that the question, it becomes less of how could God do such a thing to how could God not do such a thing? See, there is a point when corruption becomes so intensive and so extensive that removal becomes necessary. So God looks down on his good creation. And when I say creation, I don't just mean humankind. I mean all of his creation that he cares deeply for. And he sees the the problem of an infested earth. And the core of that infestation can be found in the heart and the actions and the mind of humankind. What God is trying in every place God is attempting to bring about order, humankind is bringing about disorder. In this verse, verse 5, it reveals to us what God sees. And then the the author takes an extraordinary turn in verse 6 in revealing to us what God thought and felt. Verse 6 of Genesis chapter 6 And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. You see, viewing the debacle man has fermented, God is grieved even to the point of experiencing pain in his heart. Now note, there's echoes from an earlier passage in Genesis. Previously, it was even Adam who experienced pain, but now Yahweh is feeling that stab. However, unlike Adam and Eve, where that, that pain is self-imposed, Yahweh's is not. Rather, Yahweh finds His pain, the source of it, in the depth of regret that He experiences over fallen humanity. And the fact that He's going to have to judge that fallenness. Now, it's easy, of course. For us to view all of this God-seeing and God-feeling and just write it off as anthropomorphism, meaning we give God human characteristics in order for us to understand his character and his choices. But verses like this, what they remind me of is that the God of the Old Testament is not beyond the capability of feeling pain or irritation or frustration, and to call him the impassable absolute is but part of the truth. Yahweh regretted that he made humans, and that regret, it pained him at the core of his being, which in the ancient Near East was the heart, the place where all logic and compassion and love and emotion, where it stemmed from. And God took a risk in allowing humankind to live outside of the garden, to live outside of his presence. In the open open, uh, view future of the world, It has the idea that God hopes that all humans will want to walk by his side, walk faithfully with him. But if love is the aim, then freedom is the means and risk is the price. And things may not, and in this case, in this story, they do not turn out as God would have hoped they would. But here's the remarkable thing. God is never at a loss concerning his response to rebellious agents God knows all future possibilities. He knows all future certainties. He is in control of the overall flow of history. And he's never unprepared. In his infinite wisdom, God is able to make good out of evil circumstances. Despite his rebellious uh, agents and creation, he is able to turn it to good. And that's good news for us. Because when the majority of humanity fails in this story, God has no awaiting in the ring. And whenever that job falls through, whenever you lose that child, whenever a national pandemic hits, whenever there's a hurricane waiting on your banks, you know that God is doing something that we as finite creatures, we are unable to comprehend. And scripture reveals to us a God who is utterly confident in his ability to bring about his overall purposes despite the sinful rebellion of the world. So confident is God, in fact, that he is willing to risk the loss of some free agents in order to open up the possibility of eternal fellowship with him. God is willing to suffer frustration and disappointment and grief in order to share in the joy of his glory with all of us. But our actions, they still have consequences. We saw that when we've seen that these past few weeks, as the early humans failed their tests and they paid the consequences for those failings. And that's going to be all too true in this story as well. And the next verse I'm about to read, verse 7, it's one of the hardest verses to read as we navigate this intense story. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man. Whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So keep in mind, we have to identify my bias as I read this story. I am human, and therefore the eradication of all humans goes against everything that I stand for as a human. And the word used there to blot out, it literally means to erase by washing, which is the means that God plans to do it. And so to help me grapple with this emotion that I'm feeling in this moment, I I talked to my mother-in-law and I talked to her about a peach tree that's growing in her backyard. Here's a picture of it on the screen. It's a fairly well-developed tree, fully matured, but there's something strange happening to the fruit, the peaches growing on it. Simply put, the peaches, they're corrupted. They grow these dark black spots on them. They they shrivel into these brown blobs and then they die and they fall on the ground. They, They never reach the point of being edible. They never reach their fullest potential. And the wild thing is, is that there's tons of them growing on this tree. So much potential and yet every single fruit is corrupt. So I asked her, well, what do you do? Do you just chop this tree down and put a new one in? And she told me the process she has to go through to get this tree back on a healthy cycle. First, she has to go through and she has to pluck all of the corrupted peaches and put them into buckets and haul them off. She can't allow them to just fall on the ground because what happens is they fall and they re-enter the soil and re-enter back into the cycle of the tree. So she plucks all the corrupt peaches, she puts them in a bucket, she removes them, and then for an entire year after that, she prunes back peaches as they try to grow. A Peach tries to grow, she cuts it, and she throws it out. And she says that after all of these steps, the tree finally has a chance to grow healthy peaches once again. Now, as a gardener, she has both the wisdom and the foresight to know the potential that this tree has and that the tree is not reaching that potential. So she knows the cleansing steps it will take to help the tree reach its fullest potential. It's funny, as I was talking to her about this tree, she mentioned that the birds, the wild birds and her chickens, they love the state of the tree like these, these peaches, they may not grow to their fullest potential, but they fall on the ground and the chickens munch on them. The birds love it. But she told me, while it may be good enough for them, it doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> See, God says, I have created humankind and therefore I have the right to blot them out. And if a part of the garden is being plagued by, by one plant, you would deem it necessary remove that plant to save the rest of the garden. Humankind has become fully corrupted at this point in the story. And if, if you're not convinced of that, go listen to the Bible Peel with Tracy and I, and we break down how that corruption is manifested in the story and how the author illuminates that right before this verse. And in God's profound wisdom and his profound foresight, he knows what humankind is capable of. He knows their potential and he knows the purification steps it's going to take to help them reach that good cycle. And here's why all of this matters, why it matters for us today. it matters for us as we read this story is because of the very next verse that God never gives up on humans in this process. God saw humankind in the beginning. He saw them as very good. He knows their fullest potential, and he doesn't plan on giving up on them. And so, the paradox of this story is that God is going to use a human to begin the restoration of all humans. Now, as a Christian, that paradigm should sound familiar to you. But in this story, that man's name is Noah. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, what have we learned so far? Well, we've learned that the flood was not an act of lewd destruction on part of an erratic God. Rather, God was acting to restore the goodness of his creation. What we've seen him trying to do since the very beginning of Genesis And the means by which God is going to do that in this narrative is he's going to preserve a family, the only faithful family, mind you. And he's going to preserve a family through the flood, and he's going to elevate Noah as the new Adam. He's going to place him on a mountain, in a garden paradise. He's going to give them the same commission that he gave Adam to be fruitful and multiply. And what Noah becomes for us as a reader of the Bible As he becomes a paradigm for the leader that we are all awaiting. The righteous one in a wicked age who enters through the waters of death and comes out the other side with a new creation. And brings about with him a new covenant of peace and life. Doesn't this all sound so familiar as a Christian? But here's what's remarkable. In the, the flood account in Genesis, the wicked died, the righteous one is spared. But in the moment of the cross, it's reversed. It is now the wicked who are spared. And the righteous one is going to sink beneath the waters of death. You see, Noah is saved by the ark. He's taken shelter in the ark and him and his family are saved. But Jesus, unlike Noah, he's not going to survive the flood. The water is going to rise around him. He's going to drown And through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus is going to become the shelter, not just for his family, but for all creation. Here's what I want you to hear. The ultimate consequence for sin was not expressed by the flood. Rather, it fell on Jesus on the cross. In the flood, it was violent, And I'm not trying to downplay that. The the flood was violent, but it was not the works of a violent God. Rather, God took on flesh and he died a violent death at the hands of violent men, a death that would become the very means that he would use to save his enemies and to usher in an eternal kingdom of peace. And so to bring this all together and to close this morning, Let's go back to the beginning of the flood story. There, the reader is able to follow the course of events from a divine perspective. They're lifted up. They're elevated. Like we as readers, we get to see what God sees as he looks down on his good creation. We get to listen in on his conversations. We get to hear his judgments. We even get a window into God's heart. It's a remarkable part. But with the onset of the flood, however, in just a moment, it changes. We are lowered from our divine perspective. And, and soon, as we read this story, we're just going to be able to see what other characters in this story themselves will see. As the heavens open and the ground breaks apart and water comes from all angles. And the author, he refuses to allow the reader to stand in the neutral corner as God judges his world. We're forced to take a side, just like the characters themselves are forced to take a side. Are we going to enter into this ark with Noah and his family to live faithfully? Are we going to stand on the outside? And here's the remarkable thing, and here's the point. You have a choice. God gives you a choice. You can choose to walk away from stories like this entirely. You know what? This isn't a God for me. You know what? This isn't the the type of story that I want to hear. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I want to walk away from it completely. You have that choice. But if you choose to get on that ark, if you choose to be faithful, you continue on in this story, the author is inviting you into a covenantal relationship with God. And that's not something we should take lightly. See, God's ultimate goal is to restore a broken creation. And he's looking at each of us who are wanting to get onto that ark. He's looking at each of us to continue to bring about that restoration of his creation to do our part. So what's our part? Well, we've already laid some major pillars and foundations through the Genesis narrative. We must look at ourselves as made in the image of God and the implications that has in our life. We are the Imago Dei and we must view others as made in that image as well. We must, as we stand in front of the tree of choice, which we stand in front of almost every day, we must choose God's wisdom over our own, even when ours seems so enticing. We must, as Tracy talked about last week, reject the beast that lives within. We must not allow it to take control of our reactions and interactions with other people. And as this flood narrative presents to us, Even as the world around us seems corrupt, we must be willing to live faithfully to God to enter that ark and to live in that covenant relationship. God's plan of restoration, it is going to come to completion. The question is, will you live faithfully until that day? And so to wrap up this whole flood in a nice bow, I'm going to turn back to Jesus Because Jesus gives his closest followers a prayer, and it really ties in everything we've been talking about so far in Genesis and in this morning's lesson. And so it's going to be here on the screen. It's a prayer, and I'm going to encourage you to say it out loud with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven.